Welcome to the Biochar Talk, a podcast series where I invite experts to speak about biochar, different ways to make it, its uses and application, and the significance it has. I'm your host, Jessica Covo. I'm a college senior with an interest in sustainability, agriculture, and of course, biochar. Today, I'll be talking with Kathleen Draper. I was introduced to Kathleen's work during a webinar hosted by the Counteract Climate Change Project in February and was very interested in the different applications of biochar that she introduced. Kathleen is the board chair of the International Biochar Initiative and the vice chair of the U.S. Biochar Initiative. She's also the U.S. director for the Ithaca Institute of Carbon Intelligence, and she is one of the founders and editors of the Biochar Journal. I'm so excited to be able to have a conversation with her today and take in some of the vast knowledge she has about carbon and biochar. So let's welcome Kathleen to the Biochar Talk today. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Kathleen. I'm very excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you. So I see that you're the board chair of the International Biochar Initiative and the U.S. director for the Ithaca Institute for Carbon Intelligence. Would you mind explaining how you got involved in the world of carbon and biochar? Sure. So uh, I don't come at this from a scientific perspective. I grew up kind of in the world of consulting, international management consulting for a few decades. And then I went back to do a master's in managing for sustainability. And through that curriculum, I was reading extensively about climate change solutions and discovered biochar amongst many other solutions. But to be honest, it was the only one I really understood. Since I grew up on a farm, I kind of understand the basics of it. And I ended up doing my thesis on it. And I very, very naively decided to jump in whole hog to the biochar industry about 10 years ago. Okay. So and you mentioned you grew up on a farm, and I know one of the main applications, at least historically for biochar, has been agricultural. Um, would you be able to explain some of the benefits, but also maybe some limits that come with using biochar in agriculture? Sure. So, right. Traditionally, and even in centuries ago, biochar has been used not as a fertilizer, but as a soil amendment. It brings with it a lot of different capabilities, including the ability to manage water better. So in places like California, where they have increasing periods of drought, it can and reduce the amount of water needed. It can also reduce nutrient leaching so that you don't have as much polluted water near farms. Uh, it, it holds on to nutrients uh, longer, but it doesn't normally have nutrients in it itself unless it's made from things like manure. So if it's made from woody biomass, you tend to uh, add nutrients to it so it doesn't soak them up from the soil, which would be detrimental mm. at least in the first year. Uh, but what I always say is the biochar industry went for one of the hardest markets because farmers aren't really known for being Uh, early adapters. They're not known for having a lot of excess money. And so when you're starting up an industry, the price of whatever product or service tends to be quite high. And so the value proposition doesn't always pencil out for biochar right now. But as we're seeing production increase, 
the cost of the biochar is decreasing. So it is more suitable now than it used to be for certain lower uh, revenue crops, but it's not a panacea. A lot of people say, how much biochar do you need? And it really comes down to what are your growing constraints and is biochar the best way to cost-effectively mitigate that constraint? Mm. So it might not even be helpful for every farm? No. In fact, a lot of organic farms have been increasing soil carbon for years, and they may not see a big increase, a material increase in their uh, crops because it's already good. So you really do have to be asking the right questions and not these broad general questions that tend to be what most people ask. Yeah, that's a good point because yeah, figuring out what you should be investing in and if you need to maybe remediate soil in order to get a better crop or seeing if what you have is working and maybe something else could be a solution in that way. Yeah, remediation is a big one. And, and I don't think we think of it often enough in this country, but a lot of our soils, even though soils used to grow agricultural crops are pretty polluted from either excess fertilizer or uh, pesticides and even some mining activities. And we're finding that in many cases, certain kinds of biochar is capable of immobilizing those so that it's not taken up by the plants. I had I gave a webinar a year or so ago about a group in Peru where they're cacao farmers and they were going to lose the entire European market because they had changed their regulations and they were much tighter on how much cadmium could be allowed in the cacao and they had been given five years to find a solution and nothing was working until somebody started putting uh, biochar around the drip line of existing trees. And within six months, it had reduced the cadmium uptake enough so that it would pass the new regulations. So, wow. Yeah. That's amazing. And then how do you consider whether in that case, they put the biochar around the drip lines. In different instances, is it better to mix it into the soil or like till it in or um, apply it in different ways? Yeah, it's really situational. With perennial crops, say with vineyards, that, that's a, a good question. Where I live in New York State, there's a way of doing it that kind of falls within the current management practices of vineyards in this part of the world, which doesn't necessarily exist out in California. But in the, in the fall, they have this tilling up to protect the roots from the freeze frost cycle. And you could apply it then. Uh, and then in the spring, they, they put the soil down. So you really have to be thoughtful and mindful of what the current practices are. Another really good way of applying it is when farmers are already uh, applying manure to just put the biochar in the bedding and then let it blend so that you're not adding additional labor to the farmers. You're, you're getting multiple benefits and it's already within the, the processes that exist and, and the equipment needed, so. That makes sense. So um, what are some other industries outside of agriculture where biochar is really promising or, or already entered into? 
So this is an area uh, that I find really interesting and I dedicate a lot of my time to this. I think non-agricultural uses of biochar may end up outpacing uh, agricultural uses because it's less seasonal uh, and the materials that you're displacing some of them are quite expensive, so the cost benefit is, is there, but we're seeing a lot of interest in putting it in things like asphalt. I gave another webinar a year or so ago with a guy in Australia that is putting up to 30 tons of biochar per kilometer of road in what he calls a cold mix asphalt. And then in the sublayer below it, uh, he can put up to 300 tons per kilometer of road, which is- wow amazing. And it's not just a carbon sequestration method, but it has benefits beyond that. So it can improve heat resistance and rutting resistance and things like that if you're, if you're using the right recipes. So we're starting to see that interest come to the U.S. and they are using it in Europe a little bit too. Uh, it's also being used in uh, concrete a little bit. We need to change some of our standards related to aggregates that are allowed in these kinds of things. But I also just put it in my house last week as uh, one of my plaster walls. I added about 50% biochar into the plaster. Wow. Yeah. So did you do, you just did that yourself? Yes, I did. I'm building a house, which I call my dwelling on drawdown project. Mm -hmm. And I've been trying to incorporate biochar in as many different ways as possible. So I put about a ton of it in my septic system and wow. in my trick lines. But this was the first time I put it inside the house. And my colleague, Hans-Peter Schmidt from the Ithaca Institute in, in Switzerland, he pioneered it several years ago and I'd always wanted to do it. But I was a little intimidated, so we, we did all the normal plastering on the inside walls so I could understand the process a bit more. And then I finally took the plunge and did uh, one wall with a very, very powdery biochar, and it's, it's pretty black. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's so awesome. What kind of effects can it have being in the wall? So what he found, he put it first in his wine cellar for humidity control, but it can also have insulating uh, abilities and it can reduce electromagnetic radiation. Mm. Uh, and uh, let's see, what else? There's a few other things, but I think insulation and the ability to breathe uh, better and absorb toxins are some of the most interesting ones. Wow. So in that case, it was in a powder form. And from what I've heard, applying agriculturally, having it in a powder form is great too for the surface area. In it can be. Oh, okay. But it's also, uh, if you're just applying the biochar, it can be pretty dusty that way. You got to make oh, sure true. to either put it in water. Uh, so you're doing kind of fertigation or blend it with something else. That's why I say put mm -hmm. it in the manure so that you don't have all this particulate matter flying out the back end of your spreader. That is a good point. I could picture that. <laughs> I work at a farm and I could, yeah, I could picture that flying around. <laughs> yeah. Even when we were blending the, the plaster, I think in retrospect, I would have wet it first. We, we had all the dry materials together and then started adding the water and it was pretty dusty. <laughs> okay. Do you know what format it's in when it's applied in roads or concrete? 
What I do know is that they've used all sorts of feedstocks for the biochar production, and it's pretty forgiving, unlike some other applications. Uh, it's probably not powder. It's probably a little more granular than that, because otherwise I would think it's just too dusty. Uh, but I don't know if there's a specific particle size. This is one thing we're still looking at for all these different end uses. What are the right physical, chemical, electromagnetic properties that best suit a particular application? One of the ones I'm working on right now is putting it in, in packaging materials. And it, and it has to be pretty finely ground uh, to blend properly with different binding agents. Uh, but that's not always the case with other, other things. I think it can be bigger in other applications like filtration and things like that. It might actually mm. slow things down if it's too small. That would make sense. So you mentioned that biochar can sequester carbon. Would you be able to give a explanation of how important the mission of carbon sequestration is and then a bit about biochar's role within that? Sure. So just so everybody understands, biochar is not actually absorbing CO2. Sometimes I hear people say that, but the role in, in the carbon cycle that biochar plays is once the plant has absorbed the CO2 during its lifetime, normally that would all go back into the atmosphere within a relatively short period of time when it decays. But when you cook it in a high heat, low or no oxygen environment, you're preserving up to 50% of the carbon that was absorbed mm -hmm. during the plant's lifetime in a way that microbes aren't really attracted to. So it doesn't decompose or it takes an awfully long time, decades or centuries for it to decompose. As long as you're not uh, using it like charcoal is used for heating mm -hmm. or cooking. So as long as we put it in long lasting materials or in the soil, then it can help uh, rebalance atmospheric carbon, what I call carbon interruptus. And mm -hmm. it is one of uh, a handful of negative emissions technologies acknowledged by the IPCC as being able to materially change the amount of carbon we have in the atmosphere. So we'll see. I mean, originally right now, the IPCC is really only looking at its use in agriculture. So it's it's somewhat limited in, in from their perspective and how much it can contribute to rebalancing. But I think once we start to roll out these other um, uses, which are not only capable of storing carbon, but they're displacing a lot of uh, products that have high embodied carbon themselves. Mm -hmm. So I think it plays a dual role and not just sequestering, but displacing, you know, emissions related to the production of other products. Oh, okay. That's awesome. <laughs> it's so <laughs> cool to hear about these things. Um, I know, so I attended the webinar that you were at with the Counteract Climate Change Group. And I remember one of the applications for biochar that was up and coming that you mentioned was 3D printing. Do you have any more information about how biochar could be used in that way? I'm actually talking to a, a German company on Thursday called Novo Carbon, and they are 3D printing coins right now. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. And I've also, with this new startup that I'm a part of, we were going to be producing weed whip trim which looks an awful lot like the filament that is used in 3D printing. 
Uh, and it's not that hard to do. I mean, it's, it's, they're 3D printing with a lot of natural materials and biochar is just one of them. I think it's a, a great concept for displacing plastics because even if whatever you're making with biochar in 3D printing goes to the landfill, at least, you know, it, it, it's still sequestering carbon. But I don't know of anybody doing it on a huge scale. I think it's still one of those areas that's being tentatively tested in the marketplace. But I think in the next couple of years, we're going to see a lot more of it. That's really cool. <laughs> um, I know you had also mentioned how biochar can be helpful in even including it in livestock feed. Um, what are some benefits of, of doing that? So it's still not legal in this country outside of California to add it to any livestock feed for animals entering the human um, food chain. But it's a big market in places like Europe and Australia. And the reasons why people are adding it is, is kind of similar to when, if you had to go to the hospital because of stomach poisoning, it would help take out toxins. So mm -hmm. what it does for animals is pulls out herbicides or pesticides that are on the foods they're eating and it improves the health. It can help with increasing uh, feed conversion ratios. So you feed them less and they gain more. It can also help reduce methane emissions from cattle. Although I don't really think that's why farmers are going to buy it because right now there's no incentive for them to do that. Um, and what I think the most interesting part of it is, is that it is a free delivery system for biochar to the soil. Whether mm -hmm. you're putting the manure in, in a manure spreader and spreading it that way, or whether the cattle are on a pasture and they are able to just make their deposits mm -hmm. and, and have that biochar be added to the soil. Oh yeah, that's a good point too. In that system, just applying it to the earth. Yeah. Wow. And there's been studies for uh, the dairy industry that show that it improves the quality and quantity of milk production. And I was on a webinar not too long ago with a dairy farmer from Ontario, Canada. And what he was saying, he noticed when he fed it free choice to his small herd of dairy cattle was that the abortion rate uh, of the pregnant dairy cows went almost to zero. And apparently that's a big deal. I never knew that was a big deal, but there can be a quite a high abortion rate. And he just said it was almost nothing after they were fed biochar. Wow. Well, that would seem, that would seem to be, have a, be a good thing to have around then in that case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. he was sold. <laughs> so in the way that biochar can be in that, in the cycle of sequestering carbon and that would otherwise enter the atmosphere. Is this involved in how companies can work to be carbon neutral and buy like carbon buybacks? Yes, actually. Uh, and fairly recently, I would say in 2019, the first voluntary carbon marketplace acknowledged biochar as a carbon removal credit. So it's a marketplace called Puro in Finland. And last year, a second uh, marketplace called Carbon Future 
also debuted the ability to buy biochar. And then not too long ago, Microsoft announced that they were purchasing three different types of biochar, or I should say biochar made from three different producers as part of their carbon removal portfolio, which was excellent. Yeah. Um, And now Vera, it's V-E-R-R-A, is the largest uh, developer and um, marketplace for different carbon offset and carbon removal methodologies, they are in the process of writing a biochar methodology. So by the end of this year, we're going to see a debut on their standard. Uh, So it's, I mean, it's really changed things because the price for biochar as compared to other either offsets or removal products is is about $60 compared to say $12 per ton of carbon dioxide equivalent. And when you convert that back to dry tons of biochar, there's kind of a carbon efficiency multiplier, which takes into account the emissions and transportation and stuff like that. But it it is coming out to be about $150 to $200 per dry ton of biochar which is making a huge difference in terms of pricing of biochar. So that's really exciting to see that happen. (laughs) What are some of the main organic materials that biochar is made out of, especially in contexts where a lot of it would be being used, like if it was being applied into a road, what's one of the main um, waste materials? In the U.S. right now, probably woody biomass is the number one feedstock. But I think what we're going to see change is that sewage sludge is going to become a big one, mostly because there's increasing restrictions on what you can do with sewage sludge. Nobody wants to land apply it. It's expensive to transport. It's causing all sorts of methane emissions at landfills. So the ability to carbonize that kind of feedstock uh, and reduce volumes by up to 95% is is really interesting and it's cost effective. Uh, And that kind of biochar, depending on what the inputs are to the wastewater treatment facility can be very variable and maybe not something you wanna put in soils, although it does tend to have a lot of nutrients in it, nitrogen and phosphorus. Uh, Mm -hmm. So until we can figure out how to extract the phosphorus, uh, those kind of uh, biochars are probably best in things like uh, asphalt or concrete because it's going to uh, sequester any heavy metals that might be in there or other toxins that aren't removed during the uh, carbonization process. Okay. Is there a lot of drying involved in being able to turn the sewage sludge into biochar? For sure. I think the water content is 70, 80% plus. So very often you're going to have to have some sort of pre-drying, which in some cases uh, is, is something you can harvest from the carbonization process itself. So you don't have to have external heating, but you wouldn't necessarily have any extra heat available for other processes like you would for drier feedstocks like wood. Um, so. Okay. Wow. This is all very interesting. Um, I, so I know that I read another thing that you're interested in studying is agroforestry. 
what different applications for can you see in agroforestry using biochar? Well, on the front end, planting the trees with a biochar fertilizer would make a lot of sense because what that'll do, obviously it adds carbon to your soil, but it can help improve the uh, resilience of the trees, the growth rate, the survivability. Uh, so all that's good. But then on the back end, when you start pruning those trees, that's a great feedstock for biochar. So it's mm. a nice little circle there. Awesome. So just to end on, what's it, what excites you the most about biochar? Like either something that is involving biochar now or just the future of, of it all? Yeah, it, for me, it's about the versatility of this material. I, I liken it to what the petroleum industry did maybe 100 or more years ago where they had this material and there was one use in mind, but it turns out it's used in a thousand different ways now. And so we're learning that now with photosynthetic carbon. Uh, and I think it's just fascinating to start thinking through the ways that we can wean ourselves off what I call ancient carbon and, and focus on how to live off this adolescent carbon. And, and it's just fascinating. There's endless uh, areas of research. It can be a little overwhelming, but it can also just be very hope filled, which is kind of where I want to live these days and in, in <laughs> a, a vision of hope. That's awesome. Yeah. It's very exciting. And especially when you liken it to the petroleum industry and the way it exploded, it's cool to think about what can happen in the future yeah. with biochar. And I also think we're able to clean up after a lot of these 20th century technologies. You know, I, I blogged recently about being able to use biochar to cap old wells, which are still belching methane and have, you know, toxified the, the area around the wells. And we have 2 million of those. And what a great way to, to put to rest and clean up some of those things. And the same thing with the phosphate the pools in Florida, you know, we, we've got to be smarter about how we mine different materials and maybe we don't mine anymore. Maybe we just harvest them from sewage sludge and, mm. you know, fix those old problems. Yeah. Wow. That's so great to hear. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kathleen. This has been very interesting and helpful um, in being able to see the, the broad like array of industries and applications for biochar. You're welcome. Thanks for having <laughs> me.